pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Menzel, a.k.a. Menners, and I'm in a very good mood this week after Australia's massive test victory. And joining me to celebrate, I have the, the man that actually was pretty confident Australia would win the first test. Welcome to the show, Paul Dennett. How are you? Hey, Menners. Good, thanks. Now, you've also been making uh, many appearances, appearances on Indian TV, and I'm wondering, do you need an agent? Because I'm putting my services forward. <laughs> I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> okay, so we'll, I'll get the papers to you um, this week. And now we are lucky enough to, to be joined by a woman who has literally been everywhere this summer. On the playing fields for the Sydney Sixers, on the Channel 10 and Channel 9 cricket coverage, as well as ABC Grandstand Radio. Welcome back to the show, Lisa Stalaker. How are you? Good, thanks. How happy are you after that test victory? Yeah, really happy. Certainly an enjoyable test to watch from an Australian perspective. It just shows you can't doctor a pitch and get away with it. Yeah, and also we we all had such low expectations except Paul and Australia just thrashed India. I mean, it was it was such an uplifting performance and we were talking before the show. I just cannot wait for the second test in Bangalore. Bring it on. I can't remember enjoying a test match as much as that for a long time. It, it almost reminds me of the first test way back in 1995 when we beat the West Indies in the series that we ultimately went on and won the uh, Frank Worrell Trophy for the first time in ages. It was just, everyone was, wasn't expecting it and then it was just such a triumph. It was, it was glorious. So we're going to wrap up the first test victory. We're going to preview the second test. We're going to dabble in the Sheffield Shield. That keeps getting kicked off the show every week. And then finally we're going to wrap up the show with Can't Let It Go. But before we do that, Lisa, I just wanted to ask you, you played in 11 games for the Sydney Sixers in the last season. You mixed it with commentating. You won the WBBL Championship, so you've won everything now. Is that it for you? Are you putting up the playing boots, or can we expect one more season? Well, I retired from cricket in 2013. I still call myself a retired player, even though I came out of it to play for the, the Sixers. I don't know if you count T20 cricket, whether you need to retire again. I think you do, yeah. I think you, you've just won the title. So, I mean, well, if you do retire, it's on top. Well, I retired uh, when we won the World Cup in 2013. So why not we uh, finish on a high again? Excellent. Well, congratulations <laughs> on a wonderful playing career and winning the WBBL after losing the final of the year before. Must have been great to see teammates lift the trophy. Yeah, it was a, it was a great final. There was points in the final that I thought we didn't have enough runs uh, uh, on the board, but thankfully Sarah Ailey uh, produced some of her finest cricket to, to pick up a forfer and uh, win the trophy. One thing I pointed out at the time, it's just amazing the success New, Th- New South Wales women's cricketers have had. When you look at the amount of titles they've won in the national championship, and then you put on that the Thunder and the Sixers have won the first two WBBL titles, it's, they're just simply unstoppable. Yeah, credit to Cricket New South Wales, uh, even before integration kind of occurred at an Australian level and even a state level, Cricket New South Wales decided to invest heavily in women's cricket and in pathway programs across the state, um, not only just city-based but regional-based. And because of that development and, and investment in money, we're, we're already starting to see the dominance that is expected for Cricket New South Wales teams and I'm sure uh, they'll continue to dominate. Yeah, now you can just sit on the sidelines and cheer them on (laughs) from the many commentary boxes that you seem to appear in all summer. Now, uh, let's look back at the first test in India. An amazing result. 
It was the first defeat at home for India in 20 tests. And our New South Wales Blues star, Stephen O'Keefe, took 6 for 35 in both innings, bringing about collapses of 7 for 11 and 7 for 30 for India. And this is what Coley said about O'Keefe afterwards. If you don't apply yourself, any bowling attack can look dangerous. It's as simple as that. Even a part-timer can get four wickets if you don't apply yourself. What do you think of Coley's comments there? I thought O'Keefe bowled amazingly well. I don't know that they're necessarily having a go at O'Keefe. I think he was angry at himself for getting bowled, having let one go. I think he was just speaking passionately and honestly, and ultimately nothing can take the gloss off this victory. And as I said, I don't know if he was necessarily pinpointing O'Keefe, it was a wonderful win. O'Keefe bowled brilliantly well. He'll never forget it. Um, post-match comments don't really matter. I think these are the mind games that you start to see within the players. Obviously, bitterly disappointed with how he played, the rest of his team played. You look at the dismissals, really soft dismissals. Nothing you expect for a, a team that has dominated in their home country. So by making that statement, they're just trying to put down O'Keefe and say, you know what, it doesn't matter. We, we stuffed up wasn't anything to do with the opposition. A little so bit we, disrespectful, though, after someone's taken 12 wickets. Well, there's still three tests to go. So they, he can't give him the accolades that he may deserve because in their mind, there's three tests to go. And if they say, wow, he's a wonderful bowler, amazing, it kind of puts them on the back foot. Whereas here, they, they're in control. I heard um, Aussie Shree in a press conference. Now, this is, how do you say his name? Siddhar Shriram? Is that right, Lisa? Something like that. I'm pretty close. We need Gav here. He's the expert for pronunciations. Uh, He was grilled in a press conference yesterday, and some of the Indian media seemed to be questioning his credentials as a spin bowling coach because he hadn't played that much for the Indian national team. So uh, we're seeing a little bit of disintegration in India now, panic, so to speak. Oh, no, I think that that's just... A cricket crazed nation with they've got to find an angle for for a story somewhere that they're going to ask lots of questions. You know they've had they were such... really getting stuck into him. They were like, you know, you hardly played for India, you hardly bowled for India, and you're the Aussie bowling coach. What's going on? It was... Well, there are two things there. We've we've been on this show before about saying that a great player doesn't necessarily make a great coach. Uh, maybe the fact that he didn't play more for India leads to him being a wonderful coach. Maybe he's analysed his own game and can um, help others as well. And there's yeah, a he didn't put thought... it as pointedly. He said. Something like, well, if I walk into the room and I talk BS, I think the players will know that. That was his response. (laughs) Uh, But I just thought, back to Stephen O'Keefe, great for him to do so well. Uh, What a great guy. Such a lovely man. Fantastic for him to to do what he set out to do. And someone made a good comparison about Mitch Johnson going into the 2013 Ashes that uh, we all thought Mitch Johnson could just run through England with his pace. O'Keefe just did what he set out to do. Amazing. And also, given he's had such a rough period that the Sri Lanka series was his time to shine. I mean, the pitches were, were perfect for him to, to succeed. He started well and then got injured. And then he came back to Sydney, had the drunken incident, then had two more injuries. And you'd think, gosh, you know, he's had a rough period. So it's, it's wonderful to see him do well after such a tough time. Now, I want to go through some of the incidents that happened in the first test. Australia made 260 in the first innings, and there was a bizarre episode with Matt Renshaw retiring ill a mere 15 minutes before the lunch break. And when this was happening and Steve Smith was having a chat with him, I just thought, I wonder what Alan Border would say if he was in the same (laughs) position. But fortunately, Alan Border was commentating, and this is what he said afterwards in the lunch break. I hope he, Matt Renshaw, was lying on the table half dead as captain I'd not be happy. Well, I think Renshaw got this one wrong. I think he somehow needed to get through to lunch. 
I disagree completely. That's easier said than done. <laughs> it's easier from here to say. Yeah, that, exactly. But... Uh, I think you know, I've I've travelled to India and played in India, and I've seen some of my teammates fall by the wayside pretty quickly. And when you're not great and you need to go, I think as Matt Renshaw said, you need to go. There's not much you can do. You can try. He could have done a KP though and just dash off the field like KP did during um, one of the matches and just go to the bathroom. Yeah. Run back out. It might have not been something that could have been handled in 10 or 15 seconds. He may well then have found himself getting... um, Timed out. Timed out. Um, But I, I agree with Lisa and I think that... In all honesty, had he stayed on, that was probably the, the would have been the unprofessional thing to do. I think that had he stayed on, he may well have got himself out, and then Sean Marsh would have had to come out anyway. He wouldn't have been able to come back on. You know, if you got a cut over the eye and it was bleeding into the eye, everyone would say, "Mate, go off, get stitched, come back, and when you're ready to play." He just did the exact same thing. ABs, ABs, an absolute legend, and I would, you know, I'm delighted to hear him say that. It gave me nostalgia to my youth. It's awesome. But um, I would like to have heard ABs, like what he would have expected Renshaw to do there. Uh, in that situation. Yeah, that's where um, Brendan Julian should have uh, questioned him. (laughs) (laughs) Now, um, I thought Renshaw made really good runs in that test match and I got it wrong. I thought maybe he should have been left out of the first test match, but he seems to be well adept at playing in India. It was interesting that he was, I believe, training with Steve O'Keefe and Monty Panesar on that pitch in Brisbane that they docked it up to replicate an Indian pitch. And so there's, you don't want to um, stress the parallels too much, but a tall left-handed Queenslander opening batsman did that in 2001. Matt Hayden practised on a, on a spinning wicket and had great success. Sort of Renshaw's um, emulating that in a small way so far anyway. Yeah, he certainly has had the time to put towards formulating his plans. You look at the rest of the guys, they've been playing a lot of cricket. They've been chopping and changing a fair bit as well, the type of formats, whereas he's kind of had a block period where he's been able to focus. I mean, you talk about Steve O'Keefe. He he didn't even um, play the rest of the Big Bash. He decided to play club cricket so that he'd get more overs under his belt. So some decisions that some players are making are becoming the right decisions. It may not be financially right then, the right things to do, to be part of the Big Bash is what all players want to do, but... There is a bigger goal, and you know, playing the baggy for, green, playing for for your country, and trying to win a test match, a test series in India, which hasn't been done for a very long time. They're on the right path. Brave they, decision, and the, from him, and vindicated as well. He took nine for fifty-four playing for Manly, and then he must have disappointed his teammates, saying, "I'm not going to not going to play in the rest of this." Henriques wasn't happy about it. No, he we wasn't. There. Yeah. We spoke to him a couple of times. I mean, if a pitcher tells a story. His facial expression was not happy about it. But it was the right thing to do and good on him. Yeah, right for Australian cricket. I thought before the Test match became the Stephen O'Keefe show, a one Mitchell Stark played a decisive role in changing the momentum of the Test. When he came out on that first afternoon, not only did he bat really well in putting together a whirlwind 50, but I thought he was very intelligent in taking toll of a tiring Indian attack. It was a very smart innings. Yeah, really smart. You look at who scored runs in the first innings, the two tall left-handers. So they've got good strides. They made some good decisions. Um, Renshaw goes about it differently. Mitchell Stark, you know, slog sweep, and he's effective at doing it. You should see him on the golf course. He whacks the ball a fair way. So if the ball's in his area, he was... Because he's a tail ender, he can almost get away with that. He goes, you know what? I'm going to try this. If it pays off, it pays off. If it doesn't, doesn't matter. That's the difference between being an all-rounder, a top order and a tail ender. Uh, I and think he's in that all-rounder he category is, now, though. But I don't want him to change the style that he plays. I think so he's very effective at doing that in the test arena. You don't see his numbers the same in ODI cricket or T20 cricket. He needs that bit of time to get in and 
yeah, he he was the one absolutely that changed the momentum and, and all of a sudden gave Australia something to to really um, pick up the wickets with two hundred and sixty. And then he odd came runs. in and took two wickets in the over and. Uh, that really, uh, he got Kohli out for a duck, and that really put India on the back foot. And then India went from three for 94 to 105 all out, seven for 11 in 48 balls, is their worst ever seven-wicket collapse. We all thought it would be Australia getting involved in collapses like that. Well, no, it was India, and it was great to watch. I thought Kohli's two dismissals in the match rocked the Indian batting lineup. His duck in the first innings for Kohli was his first in 104 international innings. And I just think it put India off their game to see their anointed uh, next Sachin Tendulkar fail. Ultimately, it was a hard pitch and most players were going to fail on it. Steve Smith played brilliantly um, and scored a, a 109 for effectively six dismissals. He was f- five times he should have been out. He was once out six and people are correctly saying it was one of the best innings they've ever seen. Kohli failed. I mean, most players would have failed on it. Yeah, I, I think, again, his ego said as soon as he came out, and obviously he's played, Mitchell Stark was in um, RCB, so he's played alongside him as well. Um, Do you think uh, Mitchell Stark was bowling right um, to Coley in the nets? Because I heard Ashwin was bowling leg spin to Smith in the nets last <laughs> year. So I was wondering if Stark did the same thing. Probably, who knows, all the mind games that happened. But, you know, I think he wanted to to put a stamp on on the match as all aggressive batters want to do is they want to get bat on ball and you know looking back he'd go why did I chase that it's yeah, ridiculous but just to see him swing at a half volley and edge at second ball and then miss a straight one I just think it sent shudders down the Indian batting lineup it's quite funny that the the, the three things that Stark did to India to Coley in a short space of time he pulled out of the IPL then he um, smashed them all around a bit. Then he got Collie out for a duck. It was <laughs> way to ruin a friendship. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they'll be catching up for a cup of tea, a cup of chai. So that was 105 all out for India in the first innings. Australia then made 285 in the second innings. You mentioned Steve Smith's uh, 100, Paul, as being one of the best ever. And Do you, do you think the chances take away from it? Because I think they do actually take away from it. Oh, a little bit, but I think had it been chanceless, maybe people would be talking about it as one of the very greatest innings of all time. Take put those chances into effect; it's still one, still an excellent innings. Um, they take away from it, but only a little bit, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think um, it does take away a little bit from it, but the fact that he was able to survive a hell of a lot longer than anyone else just shows the caliber of player he is, and and his record is starting to look so impressive against some of the greats in, in the game. Yeah, I was speaking to Gav about Smithy's technique against the spinners, and Gav was saying that Smith now has adopted a new technique. He was brought up to advance down the wicket and get to the half volley, which is the Australian way, but in the last six months, Smith has really been trying to play from the crease more and play the ball off the wicket, and uh, he seemed to put that to good effect in the way he was able to work the ball around and put together that very fine innings. I think playing the ball late, obviously, in those conditions is is really crucial. I mean, Alistair Cook kind of was the first type of overseas player that really adapted well to those conditions. Um, your idea is that you either want to get to the pitch of the ball and, and before it even bounces so it doesn't allow it to turn, or you play it right at the end where it's done its full turning ability and then you play the ball. So that's your depth of your crease. And, and I guess the turn's a bit slower in India, so you've got more time. Correct, yeah, and you can adjust to how much it's turning as well. I think it was O'Keefe who said that they also had a, a bit of a team decision to try not to get beaten on the inside edge, which has been a problem in the past, that the straight balls are getting them out 
LBW so often, which happened to Warner, and basically he might have been the only one that got beaten in the inside edge in this match where Smith was playing as though the ball was going to go straight on and it was outrageously spinning and he was getting beaten and he wasn't, wasn't following it. But when it did go straight on in Sri Lanka, a few times he was getting bowled. Here he wasn't. I think that's one of the ways they talk about playing either late swing bowling or spin is you just play the original line and if the ball moves, well, it's going to miss the bat most of the time and then go straight. Uh, you're, you're in business. Now, that was, Steve Smith loves Indian bowling lineup. That's his fifth century in a row against India in a test match. Made four back here. Now, that one, Don Bradman has the record with six in a row against England. Could Steve Smith do this? Could he surpass Bradman and, and at least score seven in a row against India? I think so. Uh, he'll certainly take a lot of confidence out of his innings uh, in Pune. And you'd expect that uh, in Bangalore, the, the wicket's not going to be as bad. So, um, yes, he has got a, has taken a liking to them. And if it's not spitting um, from the wicket, you know, he's every chance of breaking that record. I should say on behalf of Bradman and to, to take the podcast back to 1938, which will get all the listeners very excited, but after Bradman scored those six in a row... <laughs> The seventh opportunity, <laughs> it was the easiest wicket of all time. England got 900, and Bradman was expected to go out and get 400 in reply himself, and he broke his ankle bowling, so he didn't actually get to bat in the seventh test. And then the Second World War came up, so he didn't actually bat for another eight years, and the next two test matches that he played, he got 100 in each of them. So he actually, bat- he actually got 800s in a row in test matches in which he batted. Oh, wow, very good information, Paul, very interesting. <laughs> now... The test match finished with India all out for 105 in their second innings and the fourth innings of the match, and it completed their lowest ever match aggregate at home, losing all 20 wickets. So it was a humiliating defeat. Uh, They were set 441 to win. They were never going to get near that, and just a great victory for Australia. O'Keefe said six for 35 in both innings to keep the statisticians happy. But now let's look ahead to Bangalore. Bring on Bangalore, I say, because I think this victory makes Australia real favourites to at least retain the Border Gavaskar Trophy. I don't know if they become favourites. I think they've shown that they can cope in those conditions. But we've seen so many times in different test series that, you know, one team may win one game convincingly and the other team fights back the second and then all of a sudden we've got a really interesting series ahead. I think I, I wouldn't be surprised if I- India come back strongly. Their batters put their hand up uh, and potentially win this match. I think that the betting reflects what Lisa said, that the bookies still have India as favourites. I probably tend to agree with you, men. It's just I mean, a 1-0 lead in a four-match series is, is pretty, pretty significant. I thought going into it that Australia and India in Indian conditions are roughly evenly matched. And I know that most people didn't think that. So I think that you know, Australia's won this first test match. Every chance India will fight back. But in my opinion, Australia probably now are, are probably favourites, yes. And they only need to win one and they retain the trophy, which would be an amazing achievement after the pre-series prediction. So let's look at the Bangalore uh, test wicket, what we should expect to see. The rumours coming out of India that it would be a bit more of a fairer wicket. It won't spin as much and as early as it did in Pune. And we'll see a little bit more reverse swing come into the game. And I think we saw Umesh Yadav bowl really well reverse swing on that first afternoon. So that could be something for Australians to watch. We're all talking about how they're going to play Ashwin and Jadeja. But we've also been susceptible to the reverse swing. That could come into effect in Bangalore. The wickets that they prepared for England were certainly a lot more flatter and we saw some really big scores by both teams and I think they'll go back to that. I then think the toss is really crucial 
to both sides and anyone who gets to, to bat on it first uh, and then gets the, the opportunity to bowl on it, bowl on it last will, will have that, that advantage. So I'd expect a pitch more like what we saw uh, India versus England. I wonder if India will make any team changes. There are sort of rumours that the off-spinner giant Yadav might miss out and they'll bring in another spinner and then also... And it seems like there's always speculation about Ishant Sharma's role in the Indian side. Is um, Bhupaneshwar Kumar involved in the squad? I, have, I haven't yes, looked I yet. Think. I reckon if there's going to be swing in Bangalore, whether it be reverse or the traditional, they'd go with him because I think he's, he's, a, he's a greater exponent of that skill. I agree, and that's what I'd do as well. That Sharma's a good bowler, but I must say as an Australian fan, every time he got the ball in this match... I was feeling happy. Like, I thought that of all the bowlers, he seemed like the least threatening, and I think that that's probably would continue. I also think that Naya should probably come into consideration, the, the guy that got the triple century against England. That... He could come in for Yadav, and they just have the two spinners and the two fast yeah. bowlers. That would be a better balance. I mean, it seems like they're carrying that extra bowler for no reason. I thought Giant Yadav bowled very well in a few of the test matches against England. I don't think that he played his best this game, but... I'd be reluctant to dispense with him. In some ways, if, if it happened to be a pitch that looked like it was going to be fairly flat and not give much for the quicks, I'd be tempted to just drop Sharma and bring in um, Naya, go in with one fewer bowler and one extra batsman based on the wicket, but um, we'll see. That'd leave them one uh, fast bowler short, in my opinion. But let's look at the Australian side now. I don't think they'll make any changes. I mean, why would you change a winning side? People are pointing to the fact that Mitch Marsh didn't bowl in the first test. But I think if the Bangalore track is as expected, you could need a first change bowler to come on and bowl some medium fast. So I think they'll stick with the same lineup. Yeah, I agree. I don't think they'll they'll look to change. I think we've seen um, the Australian side in the past, even when they, they've dominated, I think it was the Ashes, George Bailey didn't do anything throughout the, the five test matches, but they kept him in there because they like a winning formula and they like... And he's a great guy, George Bailey. Well, yeah, he is a great great guy as well he's a great team guy um but uh, I wouldn't be I I don't think we'll see any changes uh if anything it depends on how Sean Marsh goes uh this test match whether obviously um Usman Khawaja is sitting on the sideline there's a lot of speculation that he should have been in instead of um where do you sit on that one Lisa we were split on the panel I was for dropping Khawaja but everyone seems to disagree with me you look at his record in the past few series, it's been exceptional, but then he hasn't done much in India. So whereas Marsh's um, record in the subcontinent is better, uh, I probably would have gone with Marsh to start with, but I'd be quick to bring in Usman Khawaja if it doesn't work this test. I think I agree that they'll probably not make any changes. Personally, if I if it was up to me, I'd be tempted to, to swap Khawaja in for Sean Marsh. And Hanscom keeping? Um <laughs> Well, yeah, this is a callback from a last show. <laughs> no, look, I'm not. Well, I don't want to be too um, too left left field. Uh, but I would, I'd, I'd also give some consideration to switching out Mitch Marsh and, and bringing in um, Maxwell or Ashton Agar. I know they're not going to do that, but um, I think if I, if my life was on the line, that's what I'd probably consider. There's a couple of things to watch out for in the second test. One of them, I think, is how India interacts with the decision review system. They just got that so wrong in the first test. And we've seen before that, and and India are new to the decision review system, so they haven't had the trial and error that Australia have had over the last few years to get comfortable with it. And they just looked completely lost when they were in the field reviewing ones that were really poor reviews. And then when they were batting, just the two openers in the second innings used them up when they were plumb in front. 
what what's going on there and they need to get it right uh it's not understanding the system to a certain degree uh also having your own ego going well i shouldn't be out i need to be out here so i'll use it <laughs> yeah hoping... i mean look every time i was out for the first minute i was convinced i wasn't out <laughs> Stumps lying everywhere. Yeah, I like, no, no Surely ball. no ball, yeah. So I think, um, and this has been the problem, that every other country has kind of gotten used to it. So they need to learn pretty quick, smart, how to use it and, and what they need to agree on, especially when they're batting. I think that's more of an issue than um, when they're in the field. Yeah, I think you, when you're batting and you're given out, I think the Australians are starting to work on the theory and with the way the rules are that... Unless it's a, you think it's an absolute shocking decision because of the way umpire's call works, you, you're actually going to probably be given out anyway. So don't yeah. refer it unless you've got a real chance. And when you're in the field as well, if you don't get a decision, then you have to be really confident because, again, umpire's call means you're probably not going to get the referral. I think England, for a while, had a pretty good system where they needed to have the bowler, the keeper and the captain want to review it on the field. And if they all said yes, then they'd review it. But if, they, if one of them said no, then, then they wouldn't. And that's not a bad way to do it. But human nature is you, you tend to get more frustrated when you see, oh, had we reviewed that, we would have got it out, than, oh, I wish he hadn't reviewed that because he wasted a review. You've got to train yourself to kind of get over that. Because in this innings, in this match, Australia should have reviewed against Coley. Um, they would have got him out. And, and it turned out that, that they didn't. But they probably could be justified in not reviewing because it was such a line ball one. They thought, Jesus, every chance it was simultaneous between bat and pad. And so they sort of took the mature option. India need to start to to learn to do that. I think they will once they um, get more experience with it. So that'll be an interesting plot to watch out for. And and finally, for the second test, I really think that India are mentally jarred after that humiliating defeat. When you lose, that's fine. But to lose in the manner they did, I think watching the way Kohli reacts to this as a leader and as a batsman is going to be fascinating. It's going to be much like we saw Smith after the Hobart debacle. What's going to be the result of this humiliation? Will it get them better or will they be vulnerable in the second test? So I'm going to pick an Australian victory in Bangalore. I don't think that his reaction will, will determine it. I think it'll be who, who plays the better cricket that wins. I think- He's the skipper. Yeah, I know, but I mean, it's a, it's a game with bats and balls. It's not played in the, you know. I think that ultimately, as Lisa said before, the toss will be important. The conditions will be um, will be significant. Who gets the best of them? But I think India will come back firing, and ultimately, it'll just come down to who plays better. Yeah, I'm not going to sit on the fence. I'll I'll make a call. I'll go. India will win this. Wow. Okay, I'll, I won't sit on the fence either. I'll say that um, I think Australia will win this one. So two to Australia, one to India. I have to say. In the moments after this victory, I was so ebullient about Australian cricket that I thought, we're just going to wipe England in the ashes coming up when they come out here. (laughs) I was so in a daze of euphoria. I was just like, bring on the ashes now, 5-0. It's going to be embarrassing for them. So, yeah, maybe I'm looking through uh, green and gold coloured eyes at the moment. (laughs) All right, so that's our look ahead to the Bangalore Test Match. And well, hang that, on, just before we move yeah. on, I did hear, um, and I haven't been able to kind of look into this, but supposedly Coley's taken his whole team for a walk through the mountains as a soul-searching uh, opportunity for the team. So would have loved to have been uh, a fly on one of their backpacks and, and heard what they were discussing. <laughs> but uh, it'll be interesting to, to read a little bit more about that and what they learnt from that experience. Sounds like a good method, sort of like meditating a la Justin Langer style just to get the things off the burden off your shoulders. Yeah, it sounds like the kind of thing that... Um, Buchanan would have done. Yeah, and that Warney wouldn't have liked. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't think anyone had the guts to tell Coley that they don't like it. 
All right, so that's our look ahead to the Bangalore test. Bring it on. And now, Lisa, it's your summer review. We've got a star in the room. You know, you were playing and commentating all summer. How was the balance? I mean, there are not many people that were playing in the WBBL. Well, there's no one playing in the WBBL and commentating. How did you find the, the balance? Yeah, it's it's difficult to kind of get your head around, um, you know, potentially commenting on, on your teammates. So I didn't play the first game. The Sixers were telecast. So it was kind of weird being in the commentary box. Uh, obviously, the Sixers lost to Brisbane Heat and I wasn't there cheering and jumping up and down. I was quite nervous and st- uh, was quite still. So it was hard to kind of separate that relationship. Uh, but everything else when I wasn't commenting on my team was fine. Um uh, it was certainly a lot of hours uh, at airports and planes, which you would know about manners, and um, and then trying to fit in all of my skill work and, and everything in between that. So it meant it was a very busy schedule, um, but I was happy uh, to kind of be involved in both. Do you think now that you're not playing that it'll make the job of commentating easier? Yeah, I don't have to get up and focus on uh, trying to stay fit so I can keep up with the youngsters. So I think I'll have more time and a better balance, um, certainly, and... Uh, but I'd still like to be involved to a certain degree with um, the Sydney Sixers. Now, having played in the Women's Big Bash League and commentated in both the first and second year, you must be able to give a great insight into how it improves. Uh, I mean, from our point of view watching, it just seemed like the standard on the field really increased dramatically in the second second year. What's it from your angle? Yeah, absolutely. I think the players firstly got used to the fact that games were going to be televised, so they weren't as shocked and stunned when the cameras were in their face also you've got to put credit down to the franchises Uh, the first year it was kind of all thrown together and um, we only had a week to kind of for the teams that kind of gelled straight away they had the advantage if they were you know for instance the Perth Scorchers they were pretty much the WA side whereas the two Sydney teams and the Melbourne teams were split so it took time for for those extra teams to get used to each other whereas this year there was a lot more planning and I think that showed in the players' performances that there were certainly core groups from last year so they felt comfortable with each other straight away. Uh, you saw the Melbourne Renegades kind of get off the bottom of the table and, and actually uh, win a, a number of key matches as well throughout the year. I think they won both their fixtures against Melbourne Stars. So the standard has improved from a broadcast point of view. I think obviously more games on Channel 10, the prime station actually allowed more viewership to occur so I think it was a great uh, it was a great year to kind of consolidate what had been such a successful year in the first one so I'm sure Cricket Australia uh, Channel 10 and, and even the players and the franchise are thinking now how do we step it up just one extra notch for uh, WBBL 03. Yeah I think the momentum did continue this year and we saw Incredible viewing figures on Channel 10. And uh, off the field, I thought it was a great comp. I mean, we, Paul and I went to a lot of WBBL games. There was a real buzz around. Kids were going and getting autographs. I mean, it had a, re- a real exciting atmosphere at every game. One thing that the franchises have done is to ensure that whatever you get in Big Bash, you get the same in WBBL. So the music, the the zinc, the kids going out getting hats, um, the players being available straight after the game for for them to sign so things so I think that interaction with the next generation uh, is really important that's something that the Big Bash and WBBL does really well. Now 
you were able to mix commentating on all the major coverages, Channel 9, Channel 10, and ABC Grandstand Radio. Let's start with the TV networks. Is there any tangible difference for you when you go into Channel 9 box or a Channel 10 box? And obviously different personnel, You, but apart from that? I think the Channel 10 uh, and the T20 coverage, it's a lot more fun, joking, bit of banter. It's all about having fun. Uh, if you're having fun in where you're seating, ho- hopefully everyone else is that is, is glued in onto the TV. Uh, Channel 9, is they do different cricket. They do test cricket, one-day cricket. And I was there just for the T20s for the women. So, you know, working with the likes of Mark, Nicholas and uh, Taylor and Heels and Michael Slater, you know, is a real buzz because I've kind of grown up, you know, watching them. So a little bit more serious uh, Channel 9 in, in how they do their coverage and, and obviously they, they've got to deal with ICC regulations um, whereas Channel 10 Cricket Australia owns the property so you can you can try whatever mm. you want there's no regulation so that's why there's it seems a little bit more loose Channel 10 um, and Channel 9 doesn't but that's because some, sometimes of the regulations mm. that they have What sort of regulations did the ICC put on a network? Uh, for instance you know, you saw sometimes an interviewer um, interviewing the batters as they were walking out. You certainly can't do that with an ICC event or international cricket. Players in dugouts can't really have your head set on. Uh, you can't be around the, the, the group just in case of anti-corruption, those type of things. And we um, saw, obviously, Howie dabble oh. in some unfortunate stats during a game in the Big Bash and obviously that happened in an international game the outcry would have been much greater. Correct yeah so certainly as commentators you've got to be careful because you're actually fed a lot of information so when you're interviewing the players whilst the game's going on you've got to be careful what you say. I think also batters aren't allowed to be mic'd up when um, in international cricket whereas in the Big Bash you saw that. What's it like commentating in this modern social media era when if you say something that's, in your mind, uh, this is going to be a fair point, but it will generate some controversy, do you ever just think, oh, I, just, I just don't want to deal with it so you don't make the point? I think you certainly think about what you're, you're going to say a lot more. And also being a female commentator, uh, there's a lot more criticism of if I get things wrong, mm. uh, then it's it's a poor reflection on female commentators altogether, not just Lisa Stalaker has no idea. So you certainly feel that pressure for all female commenta- commentators trying to kind of pave their way through through this uh, difficult industry. So it, it becomes difficult, but I think at the end of the day, your job is there to see it how you see it and then call it that way. And you've got to trust in your ability of understanding the game and the rules and everything else to, to be confident enough to say it. And, and yep, you're absolutely going to get some criticism, but you've got to kind of not look on social media and your Twitter account when that <laughs> happens. I've got a few comments about that. My first question is, and we spoke about this on another show, that I thought last summer there was a real increase in the amount of females involved with cricket coverage in this country. It seemed to be a lot more prevalent. Did you notice that? Yeah, there's a big push, uh, certainly by Channel 10 and I think also Cricket Australia, that you know, they want to make cricket the number one sport in Australia and they've got to start appealing to the 51% of the population, not just 49. So that means females involved in all parts of the game and, and one part that has probably been lacking has been from the media point of view. So certainly uh, with the Big Bash coverage, you had Ros Kelly, uh, Mel Jones and myself involved heavily and 
you'll start to see more and more females involved. I think even in radio, Isha Gua was out, Alison Mitchell. Uh, so there's more females in and around cricket. It seems getting more every year, which is fantastic. Yeah, no, it's certainly exciting, especially because it's my new career. So if there's more females more uh, ju- allowed, then that gives me uh, plenty more work. Is, there a, um, is it on the horizon, do you think, that there'll be a female commentating um, in the Channel 9 test coverage? Potentially. I mean, they, they tried it way back uh, in what, 1980s? Um, Kate Raisin, was it? Kate Fit- Fitzpatrick or, yeah, or something. Right, yeah. So, And that didn't go down that well because, firstly, she wasn't really a cricketer. She was more of a TV personality. So they've got to get the right fit. They've got, Obviously, there's a lot of females now that are starting to, to kind of get runs on the board, so to speak. They're, they're, they're in and around the media. They're getting more opportunities to commentate on, on cricket. So certainly getting more confident in being able to articulate what they need to to do in a coverage so I'd like to think that Channel 9 obviously the media rights deal is coming up for not this coming summer but for the following so there might be a lot of movement and and maybe that's something that Channel 9 looks at to keep the test coverage Cricket Australia or other people might say well you need to start to have females involved and they may look at that. I think it's going to happen. I wanted to ask you some stuff about your... Wow, that's, that's simple. It's no, no, I think yeah, it will happen. Man, it says it's going to happen, I, it's going to happen. Shall be. I think it has to happen. I mean, we've, we've, this, this podcast has a lot of gravitas. No, I think that now, if you can, the way it's tracking, can you imagine in two or three years if Channel 9 doesn't have a female commentator, how they'll look like dinosaurs? Like, I just think the way it's moving, it has to happen. Um, but I wanted to ask you about some of your work on the Channel 10 Big Bash coverage. I have two questions. Firstly, I noticed a shift with the sideline interviews when players come off that initially it would just grab the players, they come off pads and all and say, how did you bat out there? And they were always awkward, really difficult interviews. As you know, as a player, you come off and your head's full of, why did I get out? You're annoyed about stuff. And then someone shoves a microphone and then they stopped that and it seemed like they let the players go and take their pads off, have a drink, just relax a bit. And then you would do the sideline interviews I think that still is a really difficult job going up to a player in the middle of game of a game. How did you find it? It's difficult. Uh, you certainly get a sense of how the player is when uh, and when they've got out. So the normal rule of thumb is you don't speak to a batsman unless they've scored thirty five plus. So um, there are a couple of times that I interviewed, I think Glenn Maxwell, he, he might have got 30, a quick fire 30. Uh, and every now and again, you're right, a lot of players start to walk off because they don't want the interview. So they go to the sheds and get rid of the gear, but then we still grab them. Um, but certainly I, I think from a broadcast point of view is we want to grab them straight away. It's difficult because sometimes you, you want to focus on, you know what, that was actually still a good innings, but they're so disappointed with themselves. It has to be short, sharp. And you just get a sense and, and you ask the questions you need to and then you move on. And then then sometimes you'll get, like I had an opportunity to interview Owen Morgan as soon as he hit the ball for four at uh, Spotless and ran out and interviewed him straight after he was hugging his teammates. And, you know, he, he, he wanted to, to, to chat the whole time and was so happy and excited and it was great to kind of be there. And I was caught up in it as well and couldn't believe that what the Sydney Thunder were able to do. So, you know, sometimes those those interviews work and you're right, sometimes they don't, but it's it's up to the interviewer to, to get a sense of the player and, and then ask the appropriate questions. Do you find it hard? Maybe this is just my brain is so addled, but if I was doing it, I'd think that I wouldn't trust myself to remember simple facts under pressure. Do you suddenly 
think, oh, was it, was, did he play that shot or someone else? Do you find it hard to actually form the questions? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I have a little pad that I have and I kind of write questions. So if I can start to see that someone's playing a good role mm-hmm. within the side, then I'll go, okay, if he gets out at this time, what would I ask mm-hmm. him? So I kind of try and rehearse the type of questions. Obviously, you still need to listen to their answers because they be might hard. take you somewhere else and you might miss an opportunity to ask a follow-up question. So it's just it's practice, just like any skill you've got to do as many as you can and you start to get a feel for it but um, certainly I write it down I don't try and do everything off the cuff but sometimes you just have to and the last thing about the big bash coverage is I find that miking up players on the field now is becoming problematic and we saw two instances during the summer at least where it was a big problem with the Howie incident to Brad Hodge and then Kevin Peterson who I think was unfairly fine because you're, you know, you're in the middle. You're emotional, Lisa. If you get a bad <laughs> decision, if you get like a bad you. decision on the cricket field <laughs> and someone goes to you straight away and asks you what you think, your filters off. So you might go, oh, terrible decision, shocker. And then a few minutes later, when you, the red mist has calmed down, you might go, okay, well, you get some and you don't. Some days and you don't the others. So I think miking up players is becoming a problem. I think that players that put the mic on are certainly aware of it. Um, you'll find that players that swear a lot try not to because obviously the mic's live all the time, really. It's just not on air. They bring it in and out. Kevin Peterson, he's a a very opinionated cricketer, so he always tells you things that sometimes he shouldn't. So is he the right person for it? I don't know. But you'll find that other players will give you the boring answer. They'll find a way to, to... to get out of it without putting themselves in, in a difficult situation, whereas Kevin Peterson, he, he doesn't really care. I don't think those two instances were that bad at all, Menas. <laughs> I think that um, those, you know, maybe slightly could have been done differently, but only ever, ever so slightly. I think that, that they're trying to appeal to a mass audience, and that's one of the ways to do it. And I think that the occasional slight transgression is fine. Well, it means that they're human. Yeah, I just I'm I'm really serious about my cricket and I'm really serious about the big bash now and I just think it's not a Mickey Mouse competition. It doesn't need players with a microphone on running around telling you what they're doing. Yeah, but it but because of that it's brought in another group of people that would never have understood the game or understand why the captain does this and and it kind of gives them the insight that Yes, commentators may say it, but to hear it from the player's mouth straight away in the heat of the battle, I think, is is good for younger players to understand mm. that are playing the game as well. Maybe it's just not for me. Maybe, um, maybe <laughs> you should go back to watch the timeless tests of yeah. years gone by. With the, the, the pen on the table making that noise. <laughs> All right, listeners, well, before we go on and wrap this show up, I want to talk about the Have A Go Your Mug promotion. If you can go onto iTunes and leave a review for the show, you will go in the draw for a Have A Go Your Mug mug. You can not only do it on iTunes, but you can do it on whatever app you listen to the show on. Just email me that you've left a review and then you will go in the draw. If that is too complicated, you can sign up on Patreon straight away for $5 a month or more and you'll get a mug in the mail straight away. Now, thanks to Anthony Wilson for subscribing this week. And we've got two entrants for the draw this week. We've got Max and LeCheers. And uh, Paul, can you read? Can you pick a winner out and read, read it out? Sure. The winner is Max Cricket. Brilliant podcast, boys. Grateful to get an outstanding insight into Shield and Aussie international cricket all the way in Slovenia. And then he's added, given that the Australian geographical knowledge is not all that good, Central Europe. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much for that review. And thank you very much for all the entrance this week. All right, we'll be back in a moment with the rest of the show. Gone. Number 
one for Jason Gillespie. He's sixth in the match. Chopra just too late. What a sight for a fast bowler. Welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. That was Jason Gillespie dismissing Akesh Chopra in the Nagpur Test back in 2004. Australia won that test by 342 runs to win their, the series in India and their first one since 1969. And that's the what the last the last time we've won and the last the only time we've won in 40 odd years. So Australia did so well in that first test. Let's hope they can repeat the 2004 heroics. Absolutely. The previous time they won was just after the moon landing. There you go. Now, uh, you've been pulling up the great history references today, Paul. <laughs> I missed it. Um, now, let's look back at the Sheffield Shield. I said it's been skipped out of the last couple of shows, but there was some amazing performances in the last week. One of them was from one Jason Berendorf, who took nine for 37 and five for 52 in Western Australia's innings and 38-run thrashing of Champions Victoria. I love saying that. Thrashing of Victoria. Um Jason Berendorf, I think, has the real potential to be Australia's third quick. I mean, the last few years have been ruined by injury. If you look at the footage of him bowling in this match, he looks deadly. Oh, look, he's certainly been on the radar, uh, but he just hasn't been able to stay on the park because of the amount of injuries. And, and that's been the issue for a lot of young Australian quicks is they've shown some promise and, and when they're on the field, they, they're pretty devastating, but unfortunately the skill that they do means they break down a fair bit as well so I think it's important that you know he has he finishes off the shield really well he starts off next shield season as well really well um there there may be another Australia A kind of winter tour which we saw a number of our young quits quicks uh, Chris Tremaine and um Dan Worrell and all of them perform well and then get their opportunity for Australia at the on the back of that maybe that's an opportunity for him he just looks to have that bounce, carry and pace, the angle, that awkward left arm angle. And just to give you an idea of how good his 9 for 37 figures were, they're the fifth best ever in Shield history. And they're the best figures since Ian Brayshaw's 10 for 61 in 1967. That's a one James Brayshaw's dad. He's um, someone that's kind of passed under my radar. I don't watch uh, much Shield cricket like you do, Manners, but... His record's really his record's really impressive. Obviously, this would have helped it a little bit, but he's got an average twenty-two point something and a strike rate of about forty-three. So yeah, he must come into contention. And next summer, a lot of Australian cricket fans have been excited by the prospect potentially of having um, Hazelwood and Stark, Cummins and Pattinson all in contention. I think you could throw his name into the mix as well. It's very exciting. I think to me, he looks a better bowler than James Pattinson. I'm going to go on a limb. I think he really is could trouble the English batting lineup. Another one to do really well in the last Shield round was George Bailey made his maiden first-class double century. He finished 200 not out and secured Tasmania's first innings points against New South Wales. The game ended in a draw, but George Bailey seems to be thrown on the scrap heap, but he's still doing it for Tassie. He certainly is. He he is a class player and he's had an unfortunate kind of... 18 months with international cricket. Uh, so it's important that he just gets back and uh, in shield cricket and domestic cricket and scores a mountain of runs. And, uh, you know, I wouldn't put him out of contention, especially for that Australian middle order. I agree. And I think he's been 
treated quite badly the last few years because you have these players that are sort of caught between being in the Australian side and not in the Australian side and they spend time in the ODI squads and the T20 squads and they're often away for vital shield matches that they need to put their case forward. So I think Bailey's been really unfortunate. I think he should have played against Sri Lanka in those T20s that we lost the series. And I just think this, again, keeps his name up there for the selectors. He's the kind of player that wouldn't be out of place if we're talking about potentially removing Sean Marsh from the side. He could be in India right now, would be someone who wouldn't be out of place in the side. I think it's great that people who are kind of into their 30s who've had some test cricket are staying in the shield like Cowan and him. Obviously, they're in there with the intention of hoping to get back in the Australian side. But even if they don't, it adds to the strength of the Sheffield Shield of having quality veterans sticking around and not retiring. And they pass on the knowledge to the younger players. And I know George Bailey would be doing that. Another player, Adam Zampa, who some feel should be in India, took his maiden first-class 10-wicket haul, 6 for 62 and 4 for 57 in South Australia's six-wicket victory over Queensland. Great victory from South Australia. They were set 279 in the fourth innings of the game. They were 4 for 92 when Tom Cooper and their one Jake Lehman got together. And those two saw South Australia all the way through to the end and the victory. So great win for South Australia. And another player to watch, and I don't know if Chad Sayers will figure in the Ashes next year, but he certainly could figure when we go to England in a couple of years. Chad says has raced to 50 first-class wickets already with two games to go. The all-time record is Funky Miller's 67. And Chad says is a real chance to break that. Another really good bowler that would really suit English conditions. Yeah, I, I think we've seen, you know, Joe Many as well have a really strong shield season last year. Didn't quite... Uh, return the figures in, in the one-day team. and Or the test match that he played. True. And so you you almost start to feel that maybe sometimes some of those players, they've reached their limit and Shield cricket is the best that they're ever going to get and they may not quite be able to go up a level. And that's fine because we certainly want those those senior experienced players still sticking around and performing well. Yeah, I don't know if Chad Sayers has reached his limit, but I think one thing he doesn't have is that pace that you might look for in... Um, international cricket and he looks to that he needs movement off the wicket he seems to be getting a lot of wickets in South Australia that are just doing enough off the seam and in the air to really uh, mean his bowling's effective he just seems to hit that spot all the time and then uh, Adam Zampo I mentioned before first first class tenfer we've talked at length on the show about how bad his first class record is but for him to do this just shows what everyone thought is might be possible yeah and he's 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 rightly said that um, part of the reason his first-class record isn't that great is that now that he's a much better bowler than he was previously, he's not playing all that much first-class cricket. So now that he's got the chance, he's taken tenfer. That's wonderful to see. His first-class record will improve rapidly, and I think that he certainly is a potential test bowler for the future. Well, that leaves the Sheffield Shield table with Victoria still on top, South Australia in second, just under five points behind, and you've got Western Australia in third spot, and just behind them, New South Wales. Queensland, a couple of points behind New South Wales, and Tasmania still in the bottom. It's looking like Victoria to host the final, and then you got South Australia, Western Australia and New South Wales all sort of vying for that final spot. Now, it's time to wrap this show up with one of my favourite segments, which is Can't Let It Go. And I'm going to ask each of you, what can't you let go from this week in cricket? I'll start with you, Lisa. What can't you let go? Uh, the Southern Stars actually plays New Zealand in a Rose Bowl clash and it's actually telecast. Um, and... 
There was a dismissal. Rachel Hange coming back into the side since 2013. Uh, edged the ball to the keeper. It bounced uh, probably two or three inches in front of the keeper. The keeper took the catch and claimed it. Uh, even the commentators were um, dismayed with how that was given out and why it wasn't the third umpire didn't come in and, and rectify it. So how I many can't times let did the go. ball bounce? Just once. Once? Okay. Yeah, just the once. But uh, it should, doesn't need to bounce at all for it to be out, caught behind. So, uh, yeah, pretty disappointed that, um, that that occurred. There we go. What about you, Paul? What can't you let go of? Um, well, I just can't let go of how still cricket doesn't rate statistics. That before this match, everyone was saying, especially Shane Warne, who's you know, a wonderful analyst, but he, he kind of got this one wrong, saying that Steve O'Keefe uh, questioning his position in the side. And ultimately... His first-class record is is wonderful. He's got a, a bowling average under 24 um, and a bowling strike rate, uh, which is the same average as Jadeja has, and he's, his strike rate's slightly better than Jadeja. So when you think that O'Keefe has bowled in Australian conditions where finger spin isn't all that favoured, although he does get to play at the SCG and has compiled such a nice record, it stood to reason that he, he would be somewhat effective in India. Now, I didn't expect he was going to take 12 wickets, but... The fact that you compare um, his first-class record to Nathan Lyons, and Nathan Lyons is vastly inferior, yet no one would consider Stephen O'Keefe to be a better bowler, um, I, I, except me. Um, I just think that cricket should embrace statistics a little bit more. Well, that's a good one. I, <laughs> no, I, I, do you think, though, that sometimes you get caught up in stats? No, I, I, mean, I think I sometimes get caught up in stats, but if you're asking in general, no, I think that... I think that that's what everyone says. Oh, you can prove anything with statistics and they're not everything. But I think cricket's too far to the angle of, of saying that they're nothing. I, I agree. They're not absolutely everything, but they're, um, they are more than cricket gives them credit for being. Well, there you go. And I'll tell you what I can't let go of. And I wanted to end the show with this. I can't let go of Australia's test victory. As I said, I've been ebullient all week. Now I think that the ashes are ours. You can just give us the ashes now. This team has turned it round. You look back now at the Hobart test where Australia was at the bottom of the barrel. We looked so bad. And then barely two months later, we've won five tests in a row. We're just tracking upwards. It's all positive on the Australian Cricket Podcast. I agree. That was what, that would have been mine as well. But I thought this segment had to kind of be negative and sad. Um, <laughs> mine is the same. I'm absolutely delighted by it. I can't let it go either. I don't ever want to let it go. Well, we all probably can't let go of that victory. <laughs> and listeners, thanks so much for downloading the Australian Cricket Podcast. Lisa, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's always great to have you on. I know the listeners love hearing from you. So thanks again for making the time. Thanks for having me, Manus. I know a week ago you were with Mark Taylor and Mark Nicholas. And now this is a little bit of... <laughs> let down in my no, bedroom. No, not at all. And, no. Hey, 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 you better not say where we are. Well, yeah, in the studio, <laughs> in the Don Bradman studios. Uh, but thanks again. Good luck over in the IPL commentating over there. Thank you. Um, we'll be watching the IPL online. Paul, thanks again for coming into the show. Thanks, Menas. Enjoy the second test and uh, we'll catch up again soon. Thanks, listeners. Bye-bye. What a marvellous stroke. He's played no better shot than that in the whole of the series.